one of my mottos actually is something's just hurt. It's not because you have a bad attitude. It's not because you're seeing things wrongly. It's not because of your thought process. Something's just hurt. And what we need is to avoid like the extra suffering, you know, the blame and the projection into an endless future and all of that. But to somehow imagine this shouldn't hurt and it's my fault that it hurts and it's just wrong. Welcome to the Trauma-Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is a renowned meditation teacher and best-selling author of a number of books, including Real Happiness, Faith, and her newest book, Real Change, which came out in September 2020. Sharon brings a very accessible approach to her teachings around meditation and mindfulness, and she's especially known for her work around loving kindness, which we talk about in this conversation. I wanted to talk to Sharon partly because she's been engaged in some trauma-focused teachings the past few years, but also because she just brings so much wisdom and clarity to any conversation about mindfulness. In our conversation, we cover a number of topics, including how Sharon thinks about trauma and how this informs her teaching, the practice of loving kindness and how this relates to trauma as well as COVID-19, the path of moving from grief to resilience and how to find a sense of agency in the face of trauma, and also specific work that Sharon's been doing with survivors of gun violence and mass shootings. I appreciated everything that Sharon brought to this conversation, her depth, her honesty, and also her sense of humor, which really shines through in all of her teaching. I learned a lot, and I hope you do as well. So without further ado, here's Sharon Salzberg. All right, I'm here with Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm really honored to get to talk to you. It's been, I think, 20 years that <laughs> I've been you know, following you as a teacher, and um, we were just talking that we hadn't actually met in person, but um, really following your journey and excited to talk to you about trauma. And I thought as a way to start, given your time in inside of mindfulness teachings and that I know that you work with trauma, I'm wondering if we could just talk about how you think about trauma uh, as a way to start, like, is that a useful term for you still, or is it something that's very active when you're teaching? I'm just curious, you know, how you're thinking about it. I think it's pretty active when I'm teaching. I think about it in a variety of different ways. I've I've done a lot of work, and increasingly so, with what we call caregivers. You know, mm-hmm. first responders, healthcare workers in this in this time, things like that. And and so I've thought a lot about what we call vicarious trauma. Yeah. Or, you know, uh, how it's different than stress or burnout, uh, and maybe by degree, but, but actually is different. So uh, beyond the exhaustion and the depletion and all of those other things, there's often a sense of meaninglessness that comes, you know, just complete futility. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, understanding what that's like for those who are working with populations who have experienced trauma has led me to a further understanding of, of trauma itself and, and how it's not really just the same as stress. Although, again, I think it's probably a, a massive continuum yeah. that we can each place ourselves along. And, and mostly I think we tend to think of trauma as something abrupt, but of course it can be more 
continuous and wearing, yeah. depending on one's life. And, and I think it is that kind of severing of a sense of connection where it's just all too much. Yeah, yeah. That was a big part of my learning about trauma was I think when I first heard about it, I thought of it as almost like a really intense negative experience or emotion. Mm-hmm. And then started to realize, oh, there might be things, there are things happening at some point on the spectrum that would create uh, or cause for different interventions. So I'm wondering when you're, when you're working with folks who are first responders, how are you, are, are you teaching differently or how are you, um, how do you modify any of your teachings, if, if at all? Well, I think it, a lot of it is, is a question of emphasis, you know, and uh, a lot of that particular approach has to do with, uh, in a way, normalizing what people are feeling. One of my favorite descriptions of trauma is a normal reaction to an abnormal circumstance. Oh, that's great. You know, because I've I've worked also with people who are military people, all kinds of people who've, you know, are grieving in some profound way, the loss of a belief system or a person or or a sense of hope, or, you know, the, there's a lot of grief kind of in there. And, and for people to understand they're not kind of peculiar, you know, or weak or, yeah. or defective in some way. And then, you know, of course, as a meditation teacher, what I tend to do is offer tools. And what's hard is if it's a kind of big group of people, you know, with lots of different kinds of needs, and there tends to be a uniform message, and that doesn't always work, like sit with your eyes closed. Well, that doesn't necessarily work. Sure. And even the kind of model of a, a standard or classic insight meditation retreat with a 45-minute sitting, maybe that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. You know, so the best opportunities are the ones that have some flexibility. And so that's how I would modulate it if I was working with ambulance drivers or EMT workers or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you talk about, do you do do loving kindness work with uh, when you're working with first responders or those that are struggling with trauma? I know this has been a really big part of your own teaching Mm -hmm. and path, but can you talk about that? I've always been fascinated by that um, intersection or relationship because you talked about connection, that disconnection. And Mm -hmm. I think I've heard you talk about loving kindness really as a practice of connection. Mm -hmm. So how do you, is there differences or how do you Trying to think about those that relationship between trauma and loving kindness. Well, I uh, I tend to emphasize these days three major skills from you know that I've learned from meditation practice that I'm using mm. <laughs> in these times, and uh, two of them are maybe more related to mindfulness practice, and one very directly related to loving kindness. So the two from mindfulness practice are first of all having some anchor, and usually we say the breath, although of course the breath may not work for everybody, but Mm -hmm. some kind of neutral place where we can rest. We can rest our attention and therefore rest our being and have a sense of some refuge from the maelstrom of thoughts and feelings and pressures or whatever's going on. And I'm using that a lot, like remembering to breathe or just take a breath or just take a moment, you know, like, and especially emphasizing the quality of rest and how important that is just to give yourself a break. Yeah. And then, you know, also part of mindfulness is, is it's twofold actually. It's the ability to be with very painful feelings and learn not to add blame and shame and fear and projection into the future. Like 
I'll only feel this forever. And to kind of hold them and oneself more in the light of a compassionate spirit, which is enormous help for people. Yeah. And then the, the other part of that is being able to open to joy, which is very hard for almost everybody I know. Yeah. <laughs> for one reason or another, it's either we cling to it because we're so desperate it might change or we shun it because we think we don't deserve it or there's too much suffering in the world, we, we're too guilty or we feel too guilty. No, we are too guilty. Or we have um, some impossible perfectionistic standards. It's like nothing's ever good enough or we're just so distracted. We don't even take it in. So that's the whole part of, of the approach I take is it's being able to open to just like the simple joys, which it's not selfish or being conflict avoidant or something. It, it's just getting some balance in one mm -hmm. being. So those are the two really from mindfulness. And then in terms of loving kindness, it, its essence is connection. And even though I've been teaching it for low these many years and my first book, loving kindness came out 25 years ago. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. It's still hard for me to find the words. Yeah. Really, because yeah. so many people think it's making excuses for people or not taking a stand or something weak or sentimental. And really, I think it's like a power. It's like a superpower to connect. And it doesn't mean you're going to spend time with somebody. It doesn't mean you're going to, you know, let them keep behaving the way they've been behaving without taking a stand. It's It's none of that, but it's a very, very different understanding of connection and therefore of belonging. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it has us feel like we belong. You know, we're not so cast out or, or different. And we are, we can extend that to others in a way that, you know, isn't making excuses for them, but really gives us a, a whole other worldview. Hmm. Where do you think that comes from, Sharon? The 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 push against or the rejection or the, the tightening that can happen around, oh, you're just making excuses or mm -hmm. is there like, is there roots to that? Or where do you, where do you see that happen? Where's that coming from? I think, uh, you know, it comes, you know, of course from many places, but people tend to have a strong conditioning around the heart, so to speak, yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, I mean, when loving kindness first came out, I've been teaching loving kindness meditation in this country for about 10 years. I was very slow <laughs> to write a book. <laughs> That's an amazing story, but it, I, heard, I heard you talk about, it took a while to start really teaching for you, you said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, that, yeah, that was a whole other thing. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I went to Burma in um, 1985. I started meditating in 1971, which is why you've been following my work for 20 yeah. years. It's just because yeah, yeah. I'm getting older. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, mm. so I started meditating in 71, but I didn't really um, understand loving kindness meditation until I went to Burma. And then I brought it back, and it wasn't necessarily, it was well received by people who were practicing, but, uh, you know, there was a lot of commentary. Well, like it's not like a wisdom practice, or it's just, you're just trying to help people feel good, or. Right, right. You know, uh, I realized much later on, I thought, oh, they're kind of saying it's like a girly practice, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, right. It gets gendered too, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, 
but I persevered and because uh, it had been so important for me. And yeah. um, I could see that it was really helping people. And now, of course, it's a very different world and there's research and, you know, there's much more of a, a sense of uh, kind of the power of that practice. But people have all kinds of conditioning around it makes you weak. You're going to just, I think a lot of people, strangely enough, have that conditioning that can be summed up. It's in a doggy dog world, you know, like mm-hmm. you're on your own. Uh, however isolated you feel, doesn't matter, you know, just do what you need to do to get ahead. And, and so we're cut off from, from so much. Yeah. In my experience, the, it's often a really important moment in someone's journey of, of healing trauma that their, that attitude that you just named of a kind of a driving mm-hmm. um, can, mm-hmm. I think can happen in the early stages out of a sense of, you know, there's this, there's something happening in my physiology that I can't control. I'm maybe I'm barraged by flashbacks or these dysregulating sensations. So a lot of survivors will necessarily be, you know, with pretty tight grip on their process at the early stages. And then there seems to be this really important moment. I mean, myself included where to, to actually have some softening and some compassion and loving kindness for both what happened and the experience I was having mm-hmm, mm-hmm. really opened a whole door. It was super mm-hmm. vulnerable mm-hmm. and I needed to have some ground uh, of practice like those first two points that, that you named mm-hmm. first. So it's just interesting to hear that journey that you've talked about where um, that it's become more relevant and important mm-hmm. over time with loving kindness work. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, actually there are a few things, um, I'd like to say in response. One is it's funny now because people are often people who teach mindfulness meditation or present it in some way are often struggling, like because the word mindfulness sounds so cold often and mm-hmm. kind of clinical. And so they're experimenting with calling it like warm mindfulness or kindfulness <laughs> or heartfulness. You know? Right. But I'm just used to mindfulness because implicit in that has got to be that sense of self compassion. Otherwise, you're not really being mindful. You're just sitting there in a tangle, you know? <laughs> like, right, right. It's really painful. And then I'll tell you the two most unpopular meditation instructions I've ever given. Please. Uh, yes, because I think they fit uh, really well into what you were just saying. One is um, I was practicing with this Burmese teacher, Saira Upandita, who came to Barry. Uh, where I am now, the Insight Meditation Society, and uh, taught this three-month retreat in 1984. And he was a tough, fierce, demanding teacher. Mm. And one day in the meditation hall, somebody said to him, how long should I pay attention to physical pain before I move my attention to something easier? Something that's kind of a relief, you know, listening to sound or paying attention to some other sensation in my body. And it was actually a very interesting question because we use physical pain as a sort of template for emotional pain, you know, heartache and disappointment and whatever. Yeah. And I thought, given his personality, he was going to say, you should be with the pain until you fall over. Right. You know, right. like get that big breakthrough. And, and to my amazement, he said, don't be with the pain for very long. He said, be with the pain, move your attention somewhere else. Then maybe go back to the pain, but then move your attention somewhere else. It's easier to be with. He said, it's not that it's like wrong. 
to be with the pain and be with the pain and be with the pain, but you'll likely get exhausted. So wow. why not build in balance all along the way? Because the goal is not to sit there and suffer. The goal is to cultivate more balance, even in the face of very difficult things. And I almost fell over listening to him, you know? Really? Yeah. I thought I was so surprised. And I thought he is like the furthest thing in the universe from someone who'd say something just to be consoling, you know? So yeah. he must really mean it. And I've given that instruction, of course, many times. And, and people often respond with like, you think I can't do the real thing. Oh, you think I'm a coward. You think uh-huh. I'm too weak to like sit there in unendurable pain. And I find that fascinating, you know, like that we give ourselves such a hard time that way. And the corollary to that is a very similar meditation instruction in loving kindness where at one point in the sequence, we're offering loving kindness to a difficult person. And in Burma, they use the word enemy. So that was very dramatic, you know. And it's not right away. It's later on. And one of the underlying principles of the practice is to offer loving kindness in the simplest way possible. You know, and that's why the sequence is is the way it is. Although, ironically, it actually begins with oneself. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we're the hardest person of all. So we say, you know, we go back to the principle. Do it in the easiest way possible. And tuck yourself in later. Don't start with yourself if it's a struggle. But anyway, you get to the part with the difficult person and the instruction in accord with that principle is don't choose the most impossible person right away mm. who has mm. hurt you so badly that it's just unthinkable or, or who in your eyes has behaved so badly on the world stage that, you know, it's just impossible. Start with someone where it's a little bit tense you know or mm-hmm. and then very slowly make your way over and um and that's because you know we're not meant to just feel defeated we're it's almost like building a uh, capacity inside and a, a very deep understanding of what it could possibly mean say to have compassion for someone else and for yourself at the mm-hmm. same time it's a very embodied understanding and it takes time And I've given that instruction, of course, many times, and people have the same response, you know, often. You don't think I can do the real thing. You know, you think I'm capable of sending loving kindness to so-and-so, you know, and I think, yeah, all right, you know. (laughs) You know, but it's it's this amazing urge to just go for, like, either the big breakthrough, which is elusive, or the hardest thing possible. And how do you workshop when you're, if you're doing an interview or you were giving that instruction and someone has that response, how do you, what's the next move for you? I'm sure it's different for every person, but Mm -hmm. how do you work in that moment when that wall comes up or that understandable pushback? Well, I I mean, either I talk about my own experience or I I just say, look, the the goal is balance. Let's talk about what balance looks like, you know, and it's going to look different at different times. Sometimes you have to step up more, you know, and, and get a little energy. A lot of times you need to lay back more mm-hmm. and uh, cultivate that. And it's not because you're different. It's because everyone is going to be different in every phase of what balance looks like. You know, it's not because you're weak or you're incapable of doing the real thing. This is the real yeah. thing. Yeah. The, both those stories that you told actually touches on something that I really wanted to ask you about which is, is a bit of a background. You, as you said, 1971, I think you said. About I started, started. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have so much appreciation, Sharon, for 
just all the work that you've done and teaching like you and the group of people who were doing work in both in Burma, I think in Thailand too, but those that really um, took the risk of um, starting to work with Vipassana in the insight tradition and just all the many years of labor and work that went into what's been created. You know, that's been life-changing for me, I know, coming into contact with teachings through that this particular lineage. So I feel this like huge gratitude for all the, you know, even when you just talked about, you know, bringing love and kindness and someone say, oh, this is a girly practice mm-hmm. or like the, the number of times that you just, you stuck on your path and then here you are and getting to talk to you now. And one of the, um, one of the things you just said about the possibility of backing off, mm-hmm. I've been really curious about one of the ways I've heard this talked about um, through, I think it's Rick Hansen talks about the, the wisdom and importance of both working with and being with that on the one hand, we might have a being with wing, which says, sure, mindfulness, we need that capacity to actually just have some bare awareness and presence. And then the working with wing is when we're kind of pushing our experience in a direction. Maybe we back off, maybe we're mm-hmm. doing, we're taking a walk, we're doing a particular practice mm-hmm. and we need to have both. And the question I had for you is of all, you know, of now the years and decades that you've seen the this work and this path unfold, one of the criticisms that I'll sometimes receive around trauma-sensitive practice, maybe mm-hmm. this echoes a little bit of what you said, is someone said, well, we're just trying to make people comfortable. Mm-hmm. And you're going too far away from when you're offering all these different practices of, well, you could have your eyes open instead of closed, or that, that this is actually just a practice of avoidance. And so this ongoing tension of when to stay with or when to work with, when to be with, and some people have said, you know, you're going too far into the working with and that we need to actually practice really being with difficulty and discomfort and, and pain. So I'm wondering how you see in this kind of this contemporary moment, does, that, does, the, does, the, feel, does the path feel balanced um, in, in general for you? Do you see it kind of tacking one way or the other? Or maybe this is part of a larger just history of this conversation, but it's something I wanted to ask you. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of impossible to answer in general, you know, because different teachers have different talents also or understandings of, you know, the complexity of emotion or whatever. And um, I think things do start with being with, and it's a kind of foundation, even if it's for a few moments, Mm -hmm. so that our efforts to work with are not so frantic, you know, or self-judgmental that there's a little bit of a base of kindness toward ourselves and and then we make the choice you know and and I think even if you know like um within the buddhist tradition which is really where I was trained although I, I think these are universal truths they're not held by buddhism really but that was the language in which it was all presented to me some lists that uh supposedly came from the buddha about how to work with sleepiness Mm-hmm. You're meditating and you get incredibly sleepy. And it includes things like, you know, first don't make sleepiness the enemy. That's what I mean by even a few moments of being able to be with one's experience. And then it has a whole list, like open your eyes. You know, right. don't sit with your eyes closed, sit with your eyes open. Stand up maybe, maybe do some walking mm-hmm. meditation. Try something like mental noting, you know, that would add a little boost of energy. And um Try to aim your attention more carefully. And it goes through this whole list. 
And the last thing on the list is take a nap. <laughs> and I just love that. I noticed that it's on the list and it may not be the first thing on the list, you know? So <laughs> it's just like, it's, and it doesn't even have to be precisely through being with, but it's some spirit of saying, this is not pass fail. You know, you don't have to judge yourself. It's like, this is a complex or, a, you know, painful situation. I'm going to try to come to balance in this way. Maybe it doesn't work. That's not a failure. Yeah. I'll try this way. That's great. You know, and, and we need that spirit as we keep trying different things. Cause uh, in the end we might have to take a nap, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you consider loving kindness in that frame uh, a working with practice? I mean, I think of course it's both. You know, I do think I do consider it a working with practice. And when you asked that, that came up in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, which is another reason why some people don't like it because um, they fear and gratitude practices the same way. And up until recently, I think there's some very recent research that shows the efficacy of of gratitude practice. You know, just thinking of maybe three things a day you have to be grateful for. Although somebody told me they were looking for one thing a month. And I said, I don't think that's enough. (laughs) You know, I I was like, pick it up a little bit, you know, but (laughs) you know, I think the, the rap about it would be like, you you get satisfied with crumbs and you just don't take a stand for anything and you can be oppressed. And, but the research has actually shown it, it builds self-respect and a wish for others to be happy as well. But it's the same kind of thing. I usually call it a stretch, you know, like if you're thinking about yourself, for many people, the only thing we really consider is our faults and our problems and the ways we fail. And, you know, and so we're going to take a little walk into another terrain, you know, like what's the good within me or what's the good in my life or what am I capable of that I'm not maybe, you know, accomplishing right now, but that's positive. And, and I'm going to wish myself well, instead of just going through the list of my faults again, you know, and and it takes intentionality, which people don't trust. You know, it takes some willingness to step out of what's familiar. But it doesn't take like a kind of violent effort, which yeah. is what I think people are afraid of. They, you know, they're going to deny the pain, try to cover it over by this feel good practice, and um, end up in this completely phony, hypocritical state. And, and that's very hard for me also to respond to, except by saying, well, try it, you know, yes. see if that's the result. Cause I don't believe it is the result. This, this feels so trauma informed, trauma sensitive. And this, this is the one thing I've learned in the last 10 years is when I think it's a new idea, I find out it's actually quite <laughs> baked into a lot of, <laughs> to mm-hmm. a lot of traditions and practices. And I remember the first trauma therapist I saw when I went in, the first thing that this person asked me is what's, what's working? Mm-hmm. in your life and i said i don't what are you talking about i don't want to yeah. talk about what's working i gotta talk about what's hard and that's i'm gonna get my money's worth uh-huh. and and she said no your capacity to be with what's working is is going to also be connected to your capacity to, to be with what's hard and and still i just so you're speaking to this tendency that i really i feel in me and then i feel in others of it means that i'm not doing the hard work mm-hmm. um, and i'm skipping out somehow and do you mind if I ask you about your practice these days? What's mm-hmm. um, without knowing about with COVID and and, and mm-hmm. all that's happening? What do you find you? What are you leaning into these days? Days in your practice? I do a lot of work 
with the breath. Um, I was very happy, so to speak, when stress researchers added freeze to fight and flight because I felt like, oh, yeah, that's me. You know, oh, the freeze? The freeze. Yes, for uh, sure. You know, we used to just say fight or flight. Now we say fight, flight, or freeze. And I think, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm the frozen kind, you know? <laughs> like For sure. And so I have to remind myself, just take a breath, you know? Just freeze, which just unfreeze, which which <laughs> will elicit movement, you know, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and some sense of flow. And so, I I went back. The first instruction I ever got in meditation in January 1971 was sit and feel your breath. And I thought I'm back there. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> and I do a tremendous amount of loving kindness meditation. Um, mm-hmm. There's so much pain, clearly, and. I'm relatively safe, although I did have a kind of startling realization in the beginning of the pandemic, which was, I'm a senior citizen. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> I right. never think of myself that way. But sure. I'm reading, you know, story after story about the most vulnerable people. And I have asthma, you know. So I thought, oh, my God, they're talking about me. So right. I, I left New York City where I have uh, an apartment and then I sublet and came back home to Barry where I've been, I came up March 14th uh, for what I thought was two weeks. I brought my snow boots. I didn't bring any <laughs> summer clothes, you know, and right. I'm still here, wow. but I feel, you know, it's safe and I'm very um, sequestered and, you know, but I, I feel in that vantage point, you know, uh, very connected to the world through the practice of loving kindness. Mm. Well, maybe that's a good pivot into um, asking you a little bit about uh, the current book around, um, is it Real Change? Yeah, it's called Real the Change. Title? You know, it seems like you're making connections of both personal and social change when you just said mm-hmm. about being connected to the world. That, And so I'm curious, you know, once I heard you had this really influential interview that you did, for me it was where you were talking about faith, your book Faith. Mm-hmm. I think someone asked you, what had you feel like you could write a book on faith? And your answer was something like, well, I actually just had questions about it. That's right. Or, yeah. And that was so moving for me. I'm like, oh, you could actually do a writing project because you're curious. Yeah, that's right. And so I'm just, when I heard about this book about real change and healing ourselves in the world, I thought, oh, what inspired you or what was your process and what's been your process around this? I'd love to hear mm-hmm. um, what you're learning and how it's been. Well, I've, this is a book I've wanted to write for a long time. And... Uh, partly because it's it's part of me that isn't often disclosed, you know, like my work and social change, and uh, mm-hmm. and and partly because uh, somewhat through my work with caregivers, somewhat um, through other work, I just keep meeting these incredible activists who are working very hard to change the world and and learning so much from them and being on the edge of, you know, people working in international humanitarian situations, you know, going to the refugee camps in Syria or um, these days, you know, doctors and nurses and ambulance drivers and people like that. I just learned so much. And uh, interestingly, every word of the book, (laughs) except for the new preface, was written before the pandemic, let alone the protests. Oh, wow. And somewhere still before the the protests, but after the launch of the pandemic, a friend was reading the book for 
creating an excerpt from it. And he said to me, he really liked the book, but he kept reading those examples and thinking, that's what made you anxious? Wait till you see what's coming. You know? Wow, wow, right, right. So then I went to the publisher and I said, could I write a new preface and kind of land the book as best I can in this time? And and they said, yes, so that, that part is new. But um, some of the chapters are things like moving from grief to resilience and I do think that some of the people I've worked with with the highest degree of uh, recent and intense trauma, like I, I talk about working with a soldier, um, that I had I had been his pen pal when he was on active duty in Iraq, and mm-hmm. he'd written to actually it was Tricycle Magazine and said he'd become interested in, in meditation before he enlisted, and could they find him a pen pal? And, I, and they sent it to me to help them find one and I, th- I thought I'll keep them you know wow so that was really amazing like instructing someone in he- listening to sound and then saying well what I in him responding like what I hear is shrapnel and you know I think oh bad advice you know but <laughs> yeah. um yeah. he showed up at IMS uh like two weeks after he he was let out of the wow. army and uh no one knew he was coming and I would never give someone the advice, you know, in that particular state of his nervous system. I think an intensive silent retreat is for you, you know? Yeah. Like, but he was there. Wow. And so we, we sort of created like a parallel practice for him. So he wasn't immersed in the intensive silent retreat, but he was uh, doing these practice, you know, like a lot of walking, picking up rocks, you know, a lot of, kind of mindfulness and daily activity things and talking, talking to me, talking to Rodney Smith, who was the teacher leading that retreat. And at one point, Rodney, who had started and uh, run two different hospices, said to me, don't you see he's grieving? You know, I mean, he enlisted with a lot of high hopes and ideals and Mm. it was so painful. I mean, in every way it was painful for him, but, and that gave me a, a certain sense of, oh, right, you know, of closeness, really. And so he's in, he's in that chapter on moving from grief to resilience. I have a chapter on moving from anger to courage. And there's a lot throughout about agency. How do you find a sense of agency when everything feels hopeless Yeah, and, and things like that? So uh, I'm really glad about the book, you know, and I also, I mean, I interviewed tons of people who were, you know, striking fast food workers or immigration attorneys or um, anti-bias workers. I mean, there's so many people that uh, it's really their testament to to what helps them. Did you say anger to courage was mm-hmm. one, for example? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of a refrain, Sharon, that that's, or that's when the chapters, are they structured in that way? It's like from here to there? Um, I did that. You know, I just thought, oh, you know, I mean, that's an interesting journey, that particular one, because I think it does no one any good to dishonor what you're actually feeling. Right. And to have people feel that it's wrong or bad. One of my mottos, actually, is something's just hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not because you have a bad attitude. It's not because you're seeing things wrongly. It's not because of your thought process. Something's just hurt. And what we need is to avoid like the extra suffering you know, the blame and the projection into an endless future and all of that. But to somehow imagine this shouldn't hurt and it's my fault that it hurts and 
it's just wrong. And so um, I have it in the uh, book and sort of uh, this graphic, because I said I want people to like make cups or T-shirts or caps or something, <laughs> that something's just hurt. And this yeah. friend just sent me two cups, actually, that say something's just hurt. Oh, cool. <laughs> and, yeah, cool. very cool. Yeah. You know, so it's not about putting yourself down for feeling angry or, but kind of recognizing what's in there that's good, which is energy, and what's mm-hmm. incredibly destructive, which is the, you know, the damage, first of all, it can do to ourselves and the way it can give us sort of tunnel vision. It's almost a feature of, of not feeling anger, but getting lost in anger, getting overwhelmed by anger and you know, it's like if you think about the last time you were really angry at yourself, it's probably not a time you also thought, you know what? I said that really stupid thing, but I did five great things that same morning. It's like those five great things, they are gone. Yeah. You know, and so we want to avoid tunnel vision. We want to avoid that kind of burning that, that hurts us so much. And And yet, you know, we have to honor what we're feeling. That's what we're feeling. Yeah, that's, that's what I was... I was curious about it and I think about it really through the lens of trauma that well actually just if I think about you offering this those teachings right now the the power of that in this moment and then moments where I've been say working as a trauma professional and if there's any part of me that's trying to skip past and and uh, whether it's anger or some what emotion that can feel destructive if the person I'm working with feels like there's just any whiff of um, undignifying that mm-hmm. really intelligent response that it picks up the whole system. And it seems like a moment, that's why I'm asking, where there's just so much polarization, understandably, mm-hmm. around power and identity. And uh, when someone who is, someone who is um, not necessarily being targeted by direct systemic oppression says anything that could that could have a feeling of like can we just move forward can we just mm-hmm. move on can just raise so much understandable anger frustration like it's a bit of a high wire act mm-hmm. to both mm-hmm. dignify and then say like we're moving towards this so mm-hmm. it just gets me curious of how you're yeah it's how to work with that to like deeply dignify anger, for example, and then say, and there's this possibility around courage, both are there. I'm just curious how you work with it or think about it. Yeah. Well, I think it is a high water act. And yeah, I just read the book loud for uh, the audio version. Was and it loud? Say so what's that? Would you say loud? Oh, oh you loud. read the, your book. I see. Yeah. I, and that was part of the problem is that I slur words. Aloud. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, we tried to, change a, a room upstairs in my house to a studio as best we could and that meant no fans no air conditioning so it was boiling hot and, oh was it and, wow. uh, so I, I got to hear it in a way which is a very interesting experience and i think huh you know because this is yet another time uh now that these protests have erupted and people are thinking and talking about systemic racism and 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 so i i was reading it and and thinking how do I feel about this mm-hmm, yeah. in this time? But as delicate a process as it is, I think your point is is the point, you know, that we feel what we feel and we need to honor that. And at the same time, we, we can have some agency, 
you know, what's the good in, in this and what's damaging me? And uh, for those who wish, there are tools. And, you know, fortunately, well, there are two things. One is um, I was talking to Bell Hooks, who's a friend of mine, and she told me she didn't like the term social action because she thought it was too limited. It, it felt just defined by, you know, protests and things like that. And she basically said, what about art? What about creativity? Mm, right. What about breaking down social niceties, you know, and expectations through that? And so um, there's a lot of that that I tried to put in the book. And uh, many, many people of color who are speaking to art and creativity and protests and uh, and other things. So. I don't want to claim like some superior understanding by any means. Yeah. You know, this is just the platform that I have. Yeah. I wanted to bring in another book that you had written, um, Love Your Enemies, and thinking about work that you've done around um, amends. Mm -hmm. And at a time where in the conversation uh, around for racial justice, but really against like so many decades and centuries of racial oppression here in the U.S., I feel like there's this, just this big conversation uh, around how do we make amends or how could collective amends happen and even around reparations. Just a very live conversation that I don't think I've heard since I moved to the U.S. maybe 12 years ago. And, and so I went back to that, that writing around um, what, that, what your work there might offer. And so I'm wondering if you were to be thinking about the world through that, <laughs> through all your work around loving your enemies, how are you, does that still feel, how relevant does it feel or where are you seeing the lessons um, applied? Well, actually the original, or not the original, but somewhere along the process, the title of that book was uh, Love Your Enemies, It Will Drive Them Crazy. Oh, wow. Uh, which was, I co-wrote that book with Bob Thurman and he, he saw that in the movie somewhere. It was like a, a placard resting outside a church or something like that. Mm -hmm. Love your enemies, it will drive them crazy. And then the publisher ended up taking off the it will drive them crazy. Uh, and so in that original sense, it was more like, um, don't be afraid that this means giving in. Don't be afraid that um, this means being weak. To work with this actually removes you from the dynamic, which is, is, is imprisoning you of like endlessly seeking revenge, you know, but that wouldn't have worked for the meaning that you're talking about. Mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm. maybe it's good that it was removed. I liked it just because I was afraid that people would hear love your enemies and it would sound like being preached to or something. Mm -hmm, like uh, a yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. and, and I wanted to avoid that, but it is a very interesting time. I think what uh, people in this conversation that is so much more widespread now, if they're white, and um, privilege in some way are more seeing the toll not only on people of color but on themselves from living in a system of separation or or um, I think it's fascinating and this is something I put in the book too that even before the pandemic when we were then forced into more physical isolation those who were not working every day there was an epidemic of loneliness going on Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and so many ways in which we used to find each other were dissolving even before the pandemic. And, and you think about the amazing isolation that's going on when there's a great big other out there. 
that mm-hmm. we don't recognize. We don't have that kind of connection to. We don't feel empathy with. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for relieving oneself of that kind of pain, which imprisons us and uh, either making amends, as you say, or just being honest about the that level of pain, you know, of isolation, of feeling oneself exempt, of not being able to reveal vulnerability, to be locked into a set of assumptions, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the most interesting things is, is seeing the assumptions playing out in your own mind and, and being able to step back enough and, and ask, well, is this actually true? Yeah. Is this true? Like, relating to this person or not listening to them or just counting them, you know, because of some thought I'm having. Like, is it true? Do you have any thoughts, Sharon, on how social media uh, (laughs) plays into this? I heard you on an interview, I think, talk about the book. Is the book Bowling Alone? Yeah. That, you know, there had been, I guess, bowling leagues in different cultures where just just different uh, aspects where people would come together and then it just feels like more and more fractaling in the direction of a social media experience where I'm interfacing with, you know, potentially hundreds of people who I don't know and the room for projection is just so high um, and it seems like it just cranks the whole dynamic up around othering. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that experience or what you think about social media, but I'm always curious what people are seeing there? Well, I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, I know a lot of lonely people actually who make important connections on social media, and I feel very grateful for that opportunity. And Yeah, right. I think about myself going to India at the age of 18 and um, to study meditation. And then from, you know, I'd never, I grew up in New York. I'd never even been to California when I went to India. Mm-hmm. But from that time on, I felt really at home in India and it was like some psychological distance got erased. And I knew I could go back there on a moment's notice. I could go back there for a week, you know, all kinds of things. And think about what that means to have psychological distance erased and to mm. get to hear about the life experience of people all over the world. Or if I teach online now, you know, if, if it's a situation where people enter like in the chat uh, where they're calling in from you know it's like russia and iceland yeah you know uh and the other side of course is very rampant i was um talking to a a friend of mine who's a professor somewhere and he was talking about his students and he was very worried about them because of the online world and and the pressure to be a certain way and it's like a curated life and as he put it no one posts a picture of their mediocre lunch (laughs) <laughs> you know, it's like everything has to be the best, and, and it's a lot of pressure. And and uh, I told him, oh, I think that's also an age thing. Like my people write about the shoulder surgery or something, you know, right, right, it's different. Right. But I was also just interviewed uh, not long ago, uh, actually in the New York Times about doom scrolling. Oh, and I heard that. I hadn't heard the word either. And, and like doom scrolling is, you know, just scrolling through some social media looking for bad news and worse news. And uh, it was a colleague of mine who recommended me. And uh, then I thought, what does she know about my habits? (laughs) Because I can do that, you know? And Mm. then when the article came out, 
I was in it and she wasn't. And I thought, oh, she did recommend me because she doesn't do it, you know? <laughs> so I, I think, you know, there's every opportunity to use it for good or ill. And, and we have a choice. Yeah. yeah. This is where practice seems so helpful. Um, I can find myself mindlessly on there. And, and doom scroll, I had never heard mm-hmm. that term doom scroll, but I can feel, you know, the negativity bias in action. I'm just kind yeah. of looking for reasons to feel more anxious. Yeah. Um, and if I had practiced that morning as more of a shot that I'll, <laughs> I'll pull up. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to take care of um, your time here. And before we shift, I thought I could ask you just finally about um, the, the work that you've done with um, the families of survivors of gun violence um, in part so that both people know about the work, but also I think there might be ways to support it. Um, and I don't know if that's happening in an ongoing way with mm-hmm. Shelley Tajelski and you, but I'm wondering if you if you could talk just about uh, where that work is and, and maybe for folks that don't know, just your this amazing commitment that you've been in um, and a really trauma-sensitive uh, practice um, for families. But you open to talking about that for a sec? Sure. Um, I, and I got into that work really because of Shelley, um, who was living in the Parkland community, who's an MBSR teacher, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And she began teaching, I think, the day after the, sh- the shooting, the school shooting there. And uh, she invited me to come and, and give a workshop, which I did. And uh, it was a combination of some uh, parents who'd lost children, people who'd been there, teachers that day, um, some students. Um, it was it was quite an enormous experience. And subsequent to that, we created a retreat, which happened up here in Barry. Um, and because of just a number of conditions, like the change in when school's opening and in Parkland and things like that, it actually became available to people from around the country who'd been involved in some kind of gun violence in some way. And uh, that was amazing. It was, you know, people from Pittsburgh, from the synagogue shooting, people from Chicago who had lost a child, often, um, not always, but often uh, due to police violence and survivors of, of different shootings. I mean, it was just amazing. And really, of course, we were mostly creating a container where people could help each other. Yeah. And one of the things people said to me was that usually when families and survivors get together, it's to talk about policy of some kind. And, and she said, we have never gotten together just to talk about healing. Wow. And the, the word, the big word of that whole experience was tools. 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 We're just going to offer yeah. you some tools, you know, and uh, try them out see if they help. And we had, I think, four or five trauma therapists amongst the faculty, people, and someone was always available to um, to talk any hour of the day or night or uh, in any breakout group. There was a, actually a meditation teacher and a trauma therapist um, helping facilitate. And uh, I remember the day after the retreat ended, the... Uh, school was starting again. We ended on a Sunday and, and school was starting again on Monday in, in Florida in, in Parkland. And 
one of the people who was there at the retreat was a teacher, and she'd been there at the school shooting, and and uh, they had a drill the first day back at work, which was very re-traumatizing. And I bet. She said she was doubled over in a closet having a panic attack when she said to her friend, you know what, I have tools. Mm. And she just started using her breath in, in some way and got enough kind of resilience, you know, to, to keep going. And so um, that's the thing that makes me happiest is that people have tools, you know, that are theirs. It's up to them, you know, if they want to use them and, um, and they can be helpful. It seems like a, I love that with tools. It seems like a really empowering frame versus you're going to come and, and do a retreat and people might have that feeling of, you know, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm mm -hmm. failing the experience. And to just offer tools is so powerful. And Shelly was on the podcast, I think mm -hmm. six months ago, talking about just the, the, the powerful interactions happening between people in the container that you said, it sounded incredible. I just, one last question about it. How did you all take care of yourselves? There's a lot of listeners who I'm sure are doing work around vicarious trauma. And I imagine that was a lot to hold, but how did, how did you, um, yeah, how'd you take care of the team? It was a lot to hold. And, and I think, uh, people did different things, you know, like I was obsessed with people eating. Like it's got to be food available all the time, you know. And so, uh, and it's all vegetarian because it was, you know, one of our facilities. And are they going to be okay? And what about the kosher people? You know, like frozen vegetarian kosher meals don't sound that appealing, you know. Like, um, and and so I had kind of a social role in a way because it's like my place, and mm. and. Uh, and just, you know, talking to people when they say, can I get the recipe for the borscht? That's how I knew the retreat was a success. <laughs> you know, oh, good, you know. People were taking photos of the borscht and putting it on Facebook and, you know, making sure people could get recipes that we were relating, you know, not just yeah. about the painful, incredibly painful situation, but as human beings. And, and that brought a lot more lightness into the whole situation. And also I went home, you know, I, I live nearby and so, um, I would get a respite. I would get a break. I would make sure I got a break, which was very important. Definitely. I think the resilience in that, to get to get talk about food as well. That's yeah. huge. Yeah, that's great. I can send you the borscht recipe if you <laughs> Yeah, please, please. We'll post it. We'll post it. So. <laughs> um, well, thanks, Sharon. Thanks for um, for joining and just deep respect for your work and the heart that you bring to it. And, and um, if anyone wanted to support that work, by the way, uh, is there, is there ways to, I, I thought there was retreats maybe in an ongoing uh -huh. way for the survivors of gun violence. Can they, is there a website or? Yeah. I mean, if you have Shelly's, um, contact information that you've posted at some point and she's really the best person. She's like chief organizer. Great. Thanks, Sharon. We'll be well and, um, good luck with the, with the book coming out. Thank you. And thank you so much for your work. Mm -hmm. Truly. Thanks, Sharon. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Sharon for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Shelley Tijelski and the work that Shelley and Sharon have been doing with survivors of gun violence and mass shootings, you can find an episode that I did with Shelley um, in episode nine of the TSM podcast. And if you'd like to look up Shelley, you'll see the spelling of her name on the website and it's at ShellyTijelski.com. If you have any recommendations of folks that you'd like us to speak with or topics that you'd like us to cover, feel free to leave us an email at support at davidcherlevin.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.